Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. If you're responsible for the financial well-being of any company, you've probably heard about Avalara. And if not, listen up. Avalara are the folks who simplify sales tax for businesses of all kinds. As we've covered on this podcast, there are endless complications in sales tax. For example, if you buy deodorant in Texas, you're going to get charged sales tax, but not if you buy antiperspirant. Who would know this stuff? Well, Avalara does, because they keep track of thousands and thousands of products and how they're taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions in the United States alone. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash tax notes. That's avalara.com slash tax notes. Avalara. Tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, taxes at the High Court. Every summer, the United States Supreme Court releases a flurry of opinions before adjourning in June. Though, unfortunately, they can't all be tax-related, this year, the court took on two important tax cases, CIC Services and Americans for Prosperity Foundation. The court has released its opinion in CIC Services, but we're still waiting on the decision in the latter. So, what do these cases entail, and how will they affect the tax world? Well, later on, we'll talk to Tax Notes contributing editor Kristen Perillo about CIC services and the Supreme Court's decision. But first, we'll start with the one that's outcome is still uncertain. Joining me now to talk about the Americans for Prosperity Foundation case is Tax Notes legal reporter Jennifer McLaughlin. Jennifer, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. All right. Well, let's start with the basics. What is this case all about? So, at the heart of this case is the constitutionality of the California Attorney General's requirement that charitable organizations soliciting within a state must submit a copy of their Schedule B attached to their IRS Form 990. And that schedule contains the names, addresses, and contributions of major donors. So according to California, this requirement assists with the state's regulatory and law enforcement efforts. And more specifically, it assists in the state's efforts to police charitable fraud. So throughout this case, California has continually stressed that the Schedule Bs are submitted confidentially and they are safeguarded from disclosure to the public. Although the state has acknowledged that there have been past lapses in terms of public disclosure, but they have said they have taken efforts to rectify such lapses and prevent future lapses. However, California's disclosure requirement does not have a shortage of critics, including the two organizations whose cases were heard by the Supreme Court late last month. So those two organizations, the Americans for Prosperity Foundation, which we know for its affiliation with the Koch brothers and the Thomas More Law Center, those organizations have claimed that California's disclosure requirement violates the First Amendment freedoms of association and speech, and they claim it will subject their donors to threats and harassment. The organizations have argued that California has alternative means to advance its interest in regulating charitable entities, and they have stressed concerns that California has not protected the confidentiality of Schedule Bs, and information has leaked in the past, which feeds into their concerns about public retaliation against their donors. So the history of these cases goes back quite a bit, and the current appeals before the U.S. Supreme Court came from a decision issued by a Ninth Circuit panel, which upheld California's disclosure requirement against the organization's facial and as applied constitutional challenges. So that's where we are at this time. 
All right, so you mentioned that there's two different organizations that are involved in this, Americans for Prosperity Foundation and the Thomas More Law Center. So this is a joint case. Are there any major differences between the two organizations' cases? So both appeals, the U.S. Supreme Court, that were brought by the two organizations, arose from the same Ninth Circuit decision, but the two organizations have presented distinct questions to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they have offered some varying arguments. So, for example, both have taken issue with the standard of scrutiny that the Ninth Circuit applied in the underlying decision, but they each have advanced separate arguments regarding what the appropriate standard of scrutiny should be, with the Americans for Prosperity Foundation advocating for exacting scrutiny with a narrowly tailored element, and the Thomas More Law Center advocating for strict scrutiny. So, while each organization has challenged the constitutionality of California's disclosure requirement, they've offered what they have called, quote unquote, different approaches for resolving the questions presented in the two cases. Uh, likewise, the as-applied challenges are distinct as they relate to facts that are unique to each organization, such as the threats and harassment that each organization has alleged its donors have been subjected to in the past and could face in the future. In fact, there was a joint motion filed by the organizations in which they asked the U.S. Supreme Court for what is called divided argument, with each organization seeking 15 minutes of the petitioner's total allotted argument time to present their individual perspectives and arguments. However, the Supreme Court ultimately denied the motion, and only one of the petitioner's attorneys argued during the argument last month. So they are similar, but they're different. Okay, well, you you mentioned oral arguments, and and those happened in late April. What did we learn from them? I think broadly, the oral argument just demonstrated how many underlying issues are under consideration in this case. There are a lot of moving pieces. To just name a few, the justices' lines of questioning touched on a multitude of issues, including the proper standard of scrutiny, California's rationale, for requiring submission of the Schedule Bs and its ability to protect the confidentiality of the information in Schedule Bs, whether the case should be decided on a facial challenge or as applied challenge. So those are just a few issues. Something that stood out for me and, and what I found interesting was Justice Thomas's observations and questions that highlighted what is an increasingly divisive environment in our country. He raised questions regarding whether the analysis might change, legal analysis in the case might change, depending on whether an organization is considered controversial or non-controversial. And during the petitioner's argument, the attorney noted that what is considered controversial now might not have been considered controversial just a few years back. Thomas also touched on the notion that organizations might be subject to public accusations, even what he called loose accusations, of being perhaps a racist group or a homophobic group, or a white supremacist group. And he asked California's attorney, hypothetically, about a donor who may want to contribute to such a group, and whether it's reasonable they would be chilled because they have little or no confidence that their donation or their identity will be kept confidential. So I think that went to both California's ability to maintain the confidentiality of contributions and also the present-day environment. So I think that's yet another element of play in this case, specifically the present day landscape in which we're seeing in some circles, 
and increasing hostility to others' views. And I'll be really curious if and how that element plays into the court's calculus. Speaking of the court's calculus, is there any sense from these oral arguments or from from reactions from stakeholders of how the Supreme Court might end up deciding this case? I think predicting how the U.S. Supreme Court will rule in a case is often an exercise in reading tea leaves. And this case is certainly no exception. From what I have heard, it seems like the most common prediction is that California will likely lose the case, at least to some degree. The question I'm hearing more is not whether or not California will or will not lose. It's more how will the state lose or what would the court's ruling look like? So there seems to be um, a more common belief among practitioners and those who are watching the court that California could lose this case. So what do nonprofits and, and others have to say about what it means if this California law is upheld or what might it mean if this California law is struck down? So what we have seen and what we have heard is that not all nonprofits are on one side of this case. Not all nonprofits support these two organizations that are before the U.S. Supreme Court. During the merit stage of these consolidated cases, there was a wave of amicus briefs filing support of the two organizations, including briefs from a variety of groups. Sometimes they file individually, sometimes several join in a brief. Likewise, there were not as many, but there were several amicus briefs filed in support of California. And there's a slew of various concerns raised throughout the briefs. One thing that the two primary organizations in this case, the two petitioners, have particularly emphasized is the potential chilling effect of California's disclosure requirement. What they have stressed is that California's disclosure requirement presents the risk of information being leaked, in part because of the leaks that have occurred in the past, and that this puts their donors in a position of potentially facing threats, harassment, and violence because of the fact that they have donated to a group others might consider controversial. And faced with this potential retaliation, their donors might refrain from contributing to a charitable organization or to their charitable organization. So that's that chilling effect is something that um, you hear from both these organizations and a few other groups. On the other side, if California's requirement is struck down, there is one concern that I've heard that you know, regulation of charities will be undermined or impeded. And further from there, the public trust in the charitable sector could diminish so that individuals who donate time and money to nonprofits might start withholding their support because they're not confident that their, in particular their money, is going to the purpose for which it was donated. So those are a couple concerns. There was a law professor who spoke at a recent ABA panel and he indicated that federal rules could also be in jeopardy depending on how the Supreme Court rules. And he suggested that if the justices hold that, quote unquote, the mere reporting on a confidential basis of substantial contributor information to the government significantly burdens First Amendment rights, that could really put federal rules in jeopardy including the federal rule that requires the federal rule to provide substantial contributor information to public charities to the IRS. So there's a slew of concerns across the board, and those are just a few that we've heard. Before I let you go, is there any sense of when this decision might come out? I know the oral arguments were in, in late April. Is there any idea of, of when we might actually have a resolution to this case? 
again, the most common prediction or I guess the, the wide expectation is that the Supreme Court will release its decision sometime in June, probably later in the month. But of course, we are keeping an eye out for a potentially earlier release. All right. Well, this has been great. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Support for this podcast is provided by the University of California, Irvine School of Law Graduate Tax Program. If you're hearing this, you're clearly interested in taxes, and you might benefit from checking out our sponsor, or you might know someone who will. The UC Irvine Law School offers a one-year, full-time program that's been ranked the number one graduate tax program on the West Coast. Students can expect a unique academic experience that combines in-depth doctrinal work and practical perspective to prepare students for successful careers in tax law. The small student-to-faculty ratio also ensures that students get the attention they need to succeed. Applications are open now. For non-U.S. applications, the deadline is April 1st, 2021. For U.S.-based students, the deadline is July 1st. To apply today, visit law.uci.edu slash gradtax. That's law.uci.edu slash gradtax. Now we turn to another case, this one recently decided by the U.S. Supreme Court, CIC Services. I'm joined by Tax Notes contributing editor, Kristen Perillo. Kristen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. Why don't you start us off with some background about the case? What is this all about? So the key issue in this case is really on the timing of when a taxpayer can legally challenge a Treasury or IRS rule or regulation before there's been any violation of the rule and punishment for noncompliance. So in non-tax cases, people typically can bring a pre-enforcement challenge arguing that an agency regulation is procedurally or substantively invalid under the Administrative Procedure Act. But in the tax world, we have a statute called the Anti-Injunction Act, which bars federal courts from hearing lawsuits that will restrain the government's ability to assess and collect taxes. So historically, this has meant that taxpayers can't challenge a Treasury or IRS tax rule until they've paid the tax and can then sue for a refund. In this case, CIC Services filed a lawsuit in 2017 arguing that a 2016 IRS notice flagging microcaptive transactions as transactions of interest violated the Administrative Procedure Act because it was issued without a formal comment period. So I won't go too deeply into what microcaptive transactions are, but basically they're insurance arrangements that smaller companies create to cover risks and losses that traditional insurance policies don't cover. The IRS believes that some taxpayers are abusing the tax benefits for microcaptives. So by putting out this notice and calling them transactions of interest, all taxpayers and advisors who created these microcaptive arrangements have to report certain information to the IRS every year. And if they don't, the IRS can impose a penalty. CSE Services is a consulting company that advises companies on forming microcaptive insurance arrangements. They're considered a material advisor under this IRS notice, so they're required to report whatever information is required. They think this is a huge and unnecessary burden, so they want a court to rule that the notice is invalid under the APA. However, they haven't been able to get the case heard on the merits because of the Anti-Injunction Act. Both the District Court and the Sixth Circuit said that because the penalty for noncompliance is treated as a tax under the the tax code, any lawsuit 
challenging the notice is, in essence, trying to impede the assessment or collection of taxes and thus is barred by the Anti-Injunction Act. CIC Services asked the Supreme Court to review the case. The court accepted and it heard oral arguments in December 2020. So how did those arguments go? Was it clear during them how this decision was going to come out? Yeah, we could tell that the justices were pretty unsympathetic to the government's position that CIC services' only option basically was to violate the notice, pay a penalty, and then challenge the notice in a refund lawsuit. Several of the justices pointed out that not complying with the reporting requirements could subject taxpayers and advisors to criminal penalties. And, you know, they suggested that's clearly unreasonable to force someone to violate the law just to get their day in court. So now the the Supreme Court handed down a decision on May 17th. How did they come out on it? Well, the court unanimously rejected the government's position that the Anti-Injunction Act bars pre-enforcement challenges of IRS reporting requirements backed by penalties that are treated as tax as they are in this notice. The court said you have to look at the purpose of the lawsuit, and in this case, CIC Services is challenging the reporting requirements and not a tax that the IRS has discretion to impose. The court said there were three reasons why this wasn't a tax case in disguise, as the government had claimed. First, the notice imposes affirmative reporting obligations, which it said inflicts costs separate and apart from the statutory tax penalty. Number two, the reporting obligations and the tax penalty are several steps removed from each other. And number three, the fact that noncompliance can result in criminal penalties reinforces that the suit is challenging the notice and seeking relief from the reporting obligations. So how did practitioners respond to this opinion? Well, the result was expected, so it wasn't a huge surprise, but the fact that this was a unanimous decision is obviously still a big deal. We now have some clarity on the scope of the Anti-Injunction Act, but you know people are still sorting through what this means for Treasury and IRS rulemaking, especially for the reportable transaction regimes. So what does it mean next for uh, CIC? Uh, where does this case go next? So the case now goes back to the district court in Tennessee, where CIC services and the IRS will argue about the validity of the notice and whether it complied with the rulemaking requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act. So in some ways, we're back to square one. Right. Well, it's good for us. It's definitely something to keep an eye on uh, as, as it progresses again. Kristen, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. And now, coming attractions. Each week, we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now from his home is executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Victor Therunyi considers whether the Internal Revenue Code should be redrafted. Ted Stotzer examines possible tax law changes to home ownership, retirement savings, and student debt. In Tax Notes State, four Deloitte practitioners examine possible limits on the reach of state's income tax nexus after Wayfair. Four tax professionals respond to proposals on taking the collection of consumer data for business use. In Tax Notes International, Four KPMG practitioners highlight potential audit risks, misuses, and misunderstandings associated with country-by-country reporting. Nicholas Correa examines the economic substance rules that ensure that legal entities are properly taxable in the British Virgin Islands. And on the opinions page, Marie Sapiri reviews the expanded child tax credit. 
Doug Shepard explores the career of Marilyn Wethercam, the first female chair of the Council on State Taxation. You can read all that and a lot more in the pages of Tax Notes Federal, State, and International. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at TaxDo, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com slash podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening, and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.